You are listening to the Alta Sports Podcast, where we share personal stories of influential individuals within the sports world. From their upbringings in life, the start of their careers, the highlights of their career, and much, much more. Now, without further ado, here's your host, Marco the Alta Peralta. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good night, depending what time you're listening to this podcast. It's Marco Peralta, and this is the first episode of the Alta Sports Podcast. I'm your host, of course, and uh, it's called the Alta Sports Podcast, and this is something not, well, not, not really new. It's a, sort of a relaunch, you know. Um, for those that know me, I went to Arizona State. I just graduated from there, and prior to moving to Arizona to go to Arizona State, I had this show called The Alta Sports where I just interviewed people and just shared their story. I didn't ask them like, hey, how come you only scored five points that game or how come you went two for three today or one for three or you had nine runs earned in your account and you're outing as a pitcher. But I just like to tell their story. You know, we're so engraved with the idea of like people being on the mound or just being on the court and they're expected to do some great things because we pay the tickets or we just hope they do something good but in reality these people they're humans as well and i really enjoy getting to hear the story of many individuals and just having them share who they are where they came from their uh, obstacles they had to overcome to get to where they're at and also their future plans you know and maybe talk a little bit about life you know because sometimes it's necessary i hope you enjoy this podcast because the very first guest for the alto sports podcast episode one is no other than Mr. John Bloom from the Phoenix Suns, radio broadcaster for many, many years. He's a post-game show host, but he also does some play-by-play when the Hall of Famer Al McCoy needs to step out or they're on the road. So, yeah, I've known John for some time, for about six months now at the time of this recording. He actually taught a class at Arizona State. It was funny, my last semester, and I got to meet John. And the thing about John is that he's a grinder, so I relate to him a whole lot. So I hope you enjoy this first episode. So without further ado, let's get Mr. John Bloom here on the podcast. Enjoy. Before today's episode of the Alta Sports Podcast, I would like to personally shout out our sponsor, Ivy Floor Expressions in El Centro, California, the number one for flower gifts and also flower shopping. Visit them at the corner of Vine Street and the Imperial Avenue or contact them at 760-222-7897. Now let's get this show on the road. Now we welcome in Mr. John Bloom from the Phoenix Suns sports broadcaster, radio broadcaster, a lot of things that he has to his name. Simply a, a great talent when it comes to the sports broadcasting world. I've been able to know John for some time, a little bit under a year. He's actually my professor at Cronkite at, at ASU. I was mentioning it in the recording pre- before he came in right now. Uh, so, John, welcome to the show. How you doing, my man? Fantastic, Marco. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, I remember when I found out that you had done some podcasting in the past and uh, we were in class together and I was like, man, I wonder if we'll ever do this together sometime. And here we are. Now we get to do it. And I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, Definitely. Um, Since I was doing some podcasting before I went to Arizona State, I was just busy doing a lot of ASU stuff and working with another project. And once I graduated, I was like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to continue what I was doing before um, I was at ASU. And uh, I was thinking, who's going to be my first guest? And the first person that came to my mind was 
John Bloom, you know, I was like, I, I got to have this guy on the show. So I was like, might as well bring him on. Might as well bring him on, right? Well, you know, it's been a season of firsts. I had you out for your first ever full round of golf of 18 holes. So yeah. it's only right that we return the favor and we do uh, the first podcast, at least on the restart of the Alta podcast. And I'm, I'm excited to be here. And what a time, uh, you know, to do what, what we do, right? I mean, what a time to be yeah. involved with a franchise that we're both involved with. Uh, this has been such a great run for the Phoenix Suns and we're right in the middle of it, man. Yeah, without a doubt, the the Suns at the time of this recording, the Suns uh, they passed to the Western Conference Finals. They swept the Denver Nuggets. We love to see it. We love to hear it. Four Suns and four. <laughs> that was what I was saying. Like I'll tell you this, John. Over in the Spanish station, for those that don't know, I do the pregame, halftime, postgame show for the Phoenix Suns in Spanish. John does the postgame show, and he's a backup play play by play announcer for the legend Al McCoy. Uh, but something I was saying uh, during the the sports show that we have every week. And in the pregame, halftime, and postgame, I was saying the Suns are going to win in four. They were calling me crazy, but it <laughs> happened. The Suns in four, that's what happened, baby. And, man, it was great, great to watch. They were um, calling Marco Loco, but no. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> but without further ado, let's get right into this first great episode. As you mentioned, John, you were my first round of golf that you invited me to, so might as well I have to have you in my first episode back into the, the Alta Sports Podcast. So once again, John Bloom, join us here. And the first question that I have for you is obviously – uh, what we do is a profession, but we'll get into that section later. But just want to ask you for the ones that don't know and don't know who you are entirely, they know you for being the guy behind the microphone in the post game and doing some play by play. But where were you born and raised? Just tell us a little bit about your, your backstory and, and how'd you get your re- beginnings in this world, this crazy world that we live in right now. Uh, well, for me, uh, like for you, I'm a Californian, although, uh, you know, I know that, that uh, the, the amount of land that separated where you grew up and where I grew up could cover multiple states if you went a different direction, uh, because I'm from up in Northern California, just south of San Francisco, uh, in the suburbs there. That's where I was born and raised all the way through uh, elementary, middle school, high school. Uh, and then, you know, as, as I made my trek uh, into this business, uh, for some reason, I found it necessarily to go to go all the way across the country to Syracuse, New York for college. But uh, I won't skip uh, ahead there yet because I feel like there's there's more to that upbringing than just the regionality of it uh, and where I, I grew up. It's it's also uh, just kind of how I mean, for me, I grew up in a family that wasn't really into sports. Uh, and uh, and for some reason, being the youngest of three kids, uh, that's what I dove head and shoulders into. Now, I was also into music, which the rest of my family is into. We're a very musical family. And so I, I did play instruments all my life, too. I uh, still do for fun. Uh, but sports, uh, for some reason, just hit a nerve for me that was just a little bit stronger than, than music. I, st- I still am very passionate about uh, going to see live music and just enjoying music in general. Uh, but I, I did choose sports, barely by an edge. Uh, and, it, and maybe it chose me uh, as an 11 year old boy. Uh, that's when I really decided what I wanted to do, because I also decided that I was going to kill off the dream that I had up until 11, which was playing sports for a living. And I realized not only is my family not made up of sports fans and, uh, you know, people that are into sports, it's also not made up of athletes. 
Uh, and so I didn't, I wasn't really cut out to, to, you know, get to an extremely high level playing sports, even though I love playing and I still do. I love competing and I love playing all, all kinds of different sports, whatever my body will let me at this point in my <laughs> mid forties. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, uh, I think it was a deal where, um, the, the, probably what fueled the fire for me was the ability to not just retain like stats and numbers of, of athletes and players in, in various sports, uh, but recognition of, of their faces and names. Uh, and then when we'd watch games on television, inevitably I'd kind of be broadcasting myself and my family would always, you know, turn back and say, Hey, Johnny, didn't you say that? And, and so it just kind of clicked in my head, like maybe this is something I should look into for a career because it would keep me close to something I love so much in sports. It really was all about being at the games and being at the action and seeing people do things that I could never do in a million years and, and marveling at these amazing athletes and, and virtuosos in their own right, you know, in music, you, you know, what a virtuoso is right it's it yeah. could be somebody who's who's a soloist it could be a singer mm -hmm. it could be anybody but it's just somebody that's doing it at, at such a high level well, in sports there's plenty of that too and so I, I think I just gravitated to that and then I made friends through it and uh, friends were a big part of my upbringing both my parents were working and and uh, my brother and sister were significantly older so they moved out uh, and so it was really about playing sports for me any chance I could get let's go play and then when it wasn't playing it was watching and I remember specifically a lot of times in my youth where I would be in in our uh, guest room and we had a, a green couch this old kind of nasty green couch but i loved it and i would set up shop on this green couch and i would watch sports and my mom and dad and mostly my mom would come by and be like you need to do your homework right and i would have that you know snap back at her i am this is my <laughs> homework right and and i would be saying look this is what i want to do when i get older so i feel like this is my research and uh we didn't have cable when i was growing up but it was national broadcast it was local tv in the bay area I'm following all my local teams uh, and then the connection to the suns i should mention because that happened when i was 13 uh, i grew up wanting to be a basketball player my favorite position to play was point guard so i went to cal basketball camp and i made, met kevin johnson you can see you know he's up on my wall right back there seven uh there you go. Right, right near the 13 for steve nash but seven is who started it for me uh kj at Cal because both my parents went to Cal. So when I went to Berkeley for Cal basketball camp, I got a chance to meet him. And then he became, uh, you know, a son as a rookie. He got traded from the Cleveland Cavaliers three months into his rookie year. And so the Suns became my team in 1988 uh, as a 13-year-old kid. I had just turned 13. And now I'm going to battle with all my boys because they're all Warriors fans. And I'm going to rep the Suns because KJ's my guy. And now I've learned about Jeff Hornacek and Dan Marley and Tom Chambers and Eddie Johnson and all these other guys uh, that now I'm getting to work with, Marco. How cool is that? That's another part of the story. We've got to flash forward quite a bit for that. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was definitely uh, something that made me bond with this basketball team back then because I was alone. I was like the only Suns fan I knew. Uh, and I was so prideful about it too back then. Uh, so yeah, uh, then it, then it was figure out how to get into this business. And for me, uh, that was doing research and figuring out where I could go to college for it. And, and then figuring out what I needed to do to get in, uh, how good my grades needed to be, uh, what other extracurricular things I should be doing. And, uh, we didn't have radio availability in high school, uh, in, in the Bay area then. 
And so what I did was public address announcing. I went and did the PA at, at the high school basketball games and football games. And then I got an internship at the local paper, the San Mateo Times, which is actually a pretty, uh, you know, uh, large paper. And I, I guess I didn't really have the recognition of, of the seriosity of that internship for a high school kid. Uh, but it was a pretty big deal. And John Horgan was my uh, mentor at the time. And he was an amazing writer. And I learned so much during those few months. Uh, doing the PA, and it just kind of fueled that fire. I want to do more, and I really wanted to do play-by-play. -play. I mean, that has always been the ultimate goal for me, was being behind the mic during the action, calling the action, and specifically for a radio uh, audience, because uh, I, I mentioned the green couch. Well, the other element was my bed, and when I would go to bed, <laughs> I, would, I would have the clock radio right next to my ear. And I would listen to the play-by-play -play of the Giants and the Warriors. And, you know, if it was football season, maybe the, the Niners and the Raiders and certainly Cal, uh, basketball and football. And, and anytime it was a night game and I was listening and my mom would come by and say, you got to turn that off, go to sleep. I would get it just low enough so I could be the only one to hear it. And it really did help raise me into what I am uh, and being such an audiophile and, and such a fan of, of radio play-by-play. Uh, and, and I love the uh, idea that, that these broadcasters were the ones conveying what was going on uh, to the people who didn't have the images. They were the, the only source uh, at the time. Now, you know, maybe it's not quite the same. You're still the only source of live, actual play-by-play -play description audio-wise. But, you know, people can get on their phones and get whatever stats yeah. they want, whatever updates they, they want. Uh, it's, it's definitely a different world. But there is still a place for it. And I'm glad that I get a chance to do it. Uh, and, and really, I have uh, the upbringing along with the, the education I got at Syracuse for the four years. I graduated in 97. And then my first gig out of school took a little while. I interviewed for a while. I went back to California uh, for a couple of months and ended up in Detroit, Michigan. And what a, an absolute blessing that was to start a career in sportscasting in a city that absolutely eats, breathes, lives, dies their sports, right? And uh, I learned a ton in six years on the radio and TV in Detroit, doing a variety of different things. Could have been a city I could, I could have seen myself being uh, you know, for the long haul, but I did have part of me that a wanted to leave winter after four in the Q's and six in the D and B, yeah. uh, you know, I've always had this kind of West coast, uh, bias in my own head. You know, everybody talks about East coast bias when it comes to how people treat teams from the West. But for me, it's like, I've, it's almost a desire to be a uh, West where I grew up and, uh, to end up in Phoenix was just happenstance. Uh, in 19, it was 2003. Uh, my wife was the one who got the opportunity here first. She's an immigration attorney and uh, she got flown out here for an interview. I came with her. I started uh, meeting with some people, local TV, local radio stations and local teams. Uh, I knew a couple people out here uh, that I'd gone to school with, Dave Pash being one of them. And he was a senior when I was a freshman. And he had just taken over as the voice of the Arizona Cardinals at the time and was on his way to doing ESPN national stuff. And now he's a, a superstar. Uh, Craig Grelu, who also was working at the radio station at KTAR and doing sports uh, and uh, Larry Gatos, who's still on the radio here in Phoenix. These are three guys. We all went to Syracuse around the same time. And so they were out here, and I had asked them all, you know, what do you think? My wife's got an opportunity. Uh, I would really love it out there. I'm a huge golfer, so obviously that's a draw, and getting out of winter and being on the West and all those things I just mentioned. And so we made the move, and it was a pretty quick decision and a pretty crazy decision at the time. Um, you know, in our late mid to late 20s, we didn't have kids yet. We had been married for a few years. Uh, and so we come out here. I didn't have a job and I was still doing golf 
radio and TV in Michigan, um, a show called Michigan Golf Live, which still exists to this day with Bill Hobson as the head coach or the, uh, the host. And uh, I was the co-host and still, uh, you know, maintain that for about six months. And then I get the first gig out here with the Arizona Cardinals. Um, and I, I have Dave Pash, you know, partially to thank for that, along with, uh, you know, the Cardinals organization for giving me the opportunity to be the public address announcer. I did two years at Sun Devil Stadium as they built the new place. And then the first seven years of what's now State Farm Stadium. Uh, and it was what uh, University of Phoenix Stadium before that and Cardinal Stadium initially. And uh, in addition to the public address announcement, got the gig doing the pre-half and post-game shows and backup play-by-play during preseason, and then slowly just kind of built other things, did some golf broadcasting, did, uh, you know, a few other things, and then finally the opening with the Phoenix Suns uh, happened. And it was almost like uh, in 2007 when I started there, you know, you would think like, well, that's probably why I moved to Arizona. Of course it is. That, to, to work for the team I grew up uh, cheering for, of course, this is why I'm here. And yet I never really thought that uh, until there was an opening there. It wasn't like I was pining away saying, I, you know, I, I got to get something with the Suns. But obviously it was a goal and something that I, I, I would have loved to, to have the opportunity to do. And here it, it comes because Kevin Ray moved from radio to TV and it opened up that radio hosting spot. And the first year, it was an audition. They basically had me and one other gentleman, Dan Weiss, who's moved on to San Antonio and works for the Spurs organization. He's doing a great job there. Uh, they had us basically audition for the whole season and said, uh, then we'll decide who's doing it from then on. And I was lucky enough to get that call. And now we've built that up and, and moved from just doing the hosting to having a bigger role within the broadcast and uh, getting to do play-by-play, which uh, if you've listened to the previous ramblings, uh, uh, you've realized that that's the ultimate goal for me. So I'm, I'm this close, uh, you know, and, and had the opportunity to travel with the team and call road games. And then obviously with the pandemic, I'm sure we're going to talk about that, Marco. I'll tell you this much, John. If if I learned something from your class, it's when you said that you can prep as much as you want, but you're gonna use very little what of you're prepping for. If if I'm wrong, and the reason why I'm saying that is because I have a couple questions written down. I'll show it to you right here. I have a couple questions written down, and you legit answered almost every single one of them in those like ten minutes of you speaking. Just letting you know. So. I got to say, you were ready for this. You were ready for this. I just got to say that, okay? Well, you know, it's interesting because and I think you can appreciate this, Marco. I'm usually on your side of this. I'm usually the one who's throwing the questions at people. And so to be on the other side of that, when someone asks you a question about yourself, how hard is it to talk about yourself? Man? You, of course. Yeah, you don't have to search. You know. It's yeah. you. It's, it's your story. So, yeah, when yeah. I get asked about my story, it's a little bit easy to talk to but I'm, or talk about. I'm glad that that uh, you took that, though, from the class, the, the bit about preparation. And that didn't just come from me. That came from almost everybody that we had come talk to us, didn't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. A lot of great people that w- were able to visit the class. It was a, it was a great time. Uh, obviously, you mentioned Dave Pash. He was there for one time. Same time, my very first mentor, Joe Davis, uh, he was able to come on as well. And uh, it, was a, it was a great, great semester. I really did enjoy being in there with you. But the most important thing, I was able to meet you, John. It was a it was a great time just getting to know your story because I, I've been able, like, I've told you this before and I'll say this on the air. Like, I, I feel like I have a sense of resemblance with you because of the, the drive that you have, I kind of feel like the same way when it comes to that kind of drive. Does that make sense? No doubt. And I saw it in you. I could tell 
from uh, day one in class uh, because, you know, I, I hadn't done this before. Uh, this was my first semester teaching. And, uh, you know, I've coached uh, sports and youth sports. Uh, I've done different things like that. I've spoken to a lot of classes. But to actually have your own class, that's a different deal. I felt like I got to let my hair down, so to speak, with you guys and, and really get to know you. And uh, you were one of the ones that immediately, you know, uh, came to the forefront from a standpoint of being involved in conversations and, and wanting to learn and wanting to get better. And, and that definitely is something we share. Uh, and I appreciated it from the get-go. And it's also something I think is going to take you a long way. And, and so just keep after that drive and desire and passion, because that is something that uh, a lot of people don't have, and it can be a differentiator. I appreciate that, John. I really, really do uh, those kind words. It really means a lot to me. But right now for this episode, the focus is on you. You're you're in the spotlight at this moment, you know. And we mentioned I asked you the question of your upbringings, and obviously you answered a lot of questions after that. Uh, but you did mention like deciding where to go to school, and you went to Syracuse. You're in you're in Orange. It's funny. You're Orange everything. You you went to yeah. Syracuse, and you're. I wouldn't say if you really cheer for ASU because they kind of have a little orange color sometimes. It's maroon, but it has kind of has that orange feel. Yeah, but it, sometimes how they dress, it looks a little bit orange. Then you have obviously the Phoenix Suns with their orange and, and yellow at the same time. Uh, but just um, was it hard for you to choose Syracuse and at the same time, what was it that led you to that school and just how was that experience for you? Well, I think maybe the most difficult part uh, of that whole thing was – um, you know, I guess figuring out if I was going to get in first off, I mean, because I was so focused on Syracuse, I did apply to Arizona state. I got in at ASU, the Cronkite school wasn't nearly as, uh, you know, uh, robust, I guess would be the word as it is now. I mean, it's a it's off the charts now. And I would definitely have, uh, strongly considered, uh, coming here instead of freezing my butt off for four years. Uh, and, yeah, and, you could have been golfing in college when you were here exactly. as well, you know? Yeah, well, that was an option too, although I didn't really have the skills for uh, scholarship golf. I was told that I would have an opportunity to walk on back in the day, but I knew I didn't have the mental makeup for that. Uh, I barely have the mental makeup to play a casual round of golf, let alone compete at the highest level. So I knew what I was cut out for. I really did. And so the pressure was, can I get in? Uh, I did, obviously, uh, got a little scholarship, which was helpful uh, from an academic standpoint. But then it was about going there and competing, and that's where I thrive, right? I already talked about that competitive streak. So when I got there and I realized, wow, there's like 500 dudes that want to do exactly what I want to do. Let's go. I'm ready for this. And I, I think the competition kind of fueled me. Uh, for sure it did. And, uh, and, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity that I had. I think really, though, you know, the people that get all the credit are my parents and my brother and sister. Uh, my parents, first and foremost, because there's no way I even sniff the campus of Syracuse if it's not for the hard work they put in uh, to help me afford it and get there and pay for it and, and uh, you know, and, and all the upbringing. I mean, what they did. My dad, uh, you know, even though he missed a lot of time while I was little uh, and, and growing up, uh, you know, I know what, what his meaning was. He wanted to provide for his family, and, and I absolutely admire the heck out of that, and I'll never be able to repay it, uh, you know, even as hard as I might try. Uh, my mom uh, was the quintessential mom of the house, uh, but also is a busybody, and she always wanted to have something going on, and helping the world is like her main goal in life, and she's done so much of that. And so a, a good part of my high school, she was busy, uh, you know, doing that stuff, 
uh, with nonprofits and also political organizations. And then she got involved actually with the local assemblywoman uh, as a chief of staff and, and held that role for a long time. And, you know, it's, it's uh, learning from them, learning from their work ethic, learning from their drive. And then my brother and sister too, like I mentioned, my brother went away to school six plus years older than me. He went to Colorado for undergrad. And my sister went away to Penn. So she went across the country too, uh, to Wharton Business School and Engineering, double major, just a ridiculous nerd. But she's, she's so smart. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> off the chart smart uh, when it comes to books. And, uh, and so I'm looking at these two saying, well, they're kind of killing it. I should probably follow suit, right? And that's part of it. Like, you you got to do have, something, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You got to have role models. I was still the black sheep, though. The kid that was into the sports, the kid that was playing around with his friends and messing around compared to these two bookworm brother and sister that were just getting straight A's. So I did have some work to do to kind of, you know, curry favor with my folks. Luckily, I married a superstar. I think she's the reason why I, I ascended back from being the black sheep to being uh, fully tolerated youngest of three children. But, uh, and then, of course, my daughter. They're, they're the stars now. Uh, and, but back to, uh, to the decision to go to Syracuse, you know, uh, when you're in Northern California, it's not like there's a lot of kids looking to go all the way over there. Uh, I was the only one in my class in my high school. Uh, and when I got there, I did meet Craig Greelu, who grew up in the same town. He was a year older at a different high school. Uh, but that was kind of unique to be able to have another guy from the hometown. And, and we ended up driving back and forth across the country together, which was kind of cool. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was a definite step for me to gain independence like that and go across the country from my family. So much so my parents were like, get out of here. They didn't even take me. I actually flew to Chicago. This is a very funny story. And I know you have time for it, Marco, because it's a podcast. Oh, I, it's, it's only about me, right? You don't have any oh, other yeah, guests. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's about you. We know that already, you know, like it's whatever time you're going to give us, John. I know that you're a busy guy. You got family, but man, go, go at it. Do whatever you want, man. Floor well, is yours. This is a funny one I know I didn't tell in class. Oh, okay, uh, okay. <laughs> this is going to be good then. Let me get on my well, popcorn. <laughs> well, I'm going I'm going to, to school. I mean, I'm going to, to college, and it's a big deal. I'm, I'm leaving the Bay Area, and I'm going to Syracuse, New York. Uh, but I decide, all right, my parents weren't really into moving me in, and maybe it was partially me telling them I'm cool too, but I'm going to go visit my big brother, who at the time was at University of Chicago Graduate School. He still lives in Chicago to this day, so it was 25 years he's been in that city. But I, I make the stop on my way to orientation to see my big brother and hang out in the city in Chicago for a couple days. And then it's time to go. And uh, so it's an early morning flight and we're rushing to get to O'Hare and I get to O'Hare maybe about, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half before takeoff. And that's plenty of time, but uh, I'm also, you know, a clueless 18 year old kid getting ready to go to college, lugging all my bags and I'm running through this big airport. And now I'm, I'm kind of short on time and I get to the gate and I give the, the flight attendant my ticket and she looks at it and she goes, this ticket's for tomorrow. And I say, uh, <laughs> what? No, I said, no, I'm going to college. Like I'm a, I'm a freshman at Syracuse and today's orientation. I can't be late. I've got to go get orientation. If I miss orientation, I'm going to not know anything about where I'm going or anything. And you know, this is, this is 1993. So actually I pulled it off. She put me on the plane. And, wow. uh, and with the wrong ticket. So I'm on the plane. She, she got a kind heart. She, she felt for me. And here I am on the wrong plane uh, a day before I'm supposed to be going. But I thought it was the day I'm supposed to go. So I get to Syracuse. And the backstory is uh, we had been alerted who our roommates were. And I had reached out to my roommate, also named John, grew up just outside Syracuse, 
uh, in Liverpool, New York. And uh, I, I had been talking to him on the phone. Great guy. Still one of my closest friends to this day. Uh, and, and he's a Cowboys fan. I'm a Niner fan. That was when they were like every year championship game. So we set it up. I'm going to wear my Niner gear. You wear your Cowboys gear at the airport. I'll be able to spot you. And I get to the airport the day early and I'm looking around. He's not there. And I was like, this sucks. Where's my ride? And, uh, and so I call, I had to go to a payphone back then. And I call and, uh, Patty Bo, who I affectionately call his mom, Patty, uh, answers the phone. and And I said, Hey, uh, it's John Bloom. I just landed. Uh, are you guys here? And she said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, I'm here for orientation. She goes, that's tomorrow. I thought you were coming tomorrow. <laughs> I was like, you got to be kidding me. Really? It is tomorrow? Because I have it written down. Everything is today. And, the, the, and then I told her the whole story about how they let me on the plane. So, you know, that ended up turning into just a blessing because now she comes down with, with John. They pick me up. I spend the entire day with them and their family, uh, sleep at their house, get to know them. And then the next day we go to orientation. We even did some shopping, got a little mini TV for the room. We were all like uh, stoked for our dorm and, and setting everything up. And, and like I said, now 25, almost 30 years later, we're still super tight, super close. Uh, and uh, it all started then with a funny story of me being able to get on a plane like you would never, ever get to do in 2021 right you'd never get on a plane yeah. with the wrong ticket in today's no day. actually the the question i have is how were you able to get past security if the ticket was for the next day you know i'm they like did. why would you come through if it's for tomorrow <laughs> at all back you then, know? they didn't even look back then there were, i mean the security was a whole different story you could roll up to an airport 15 minutes before your flight and get on it i mean you oh, could wow. do that i have friends who used to do that even here at, at sky harbor i have friends who used to take last minute southwest flights and they'd roll up right beforehand and i said like, really you could do that uh but yeah it was a totally different deal pre 9 11 and and uh you know even you could go back obviously that was 18 or eight years before uh 9 11 but um it was uh it was quite a story to start uh, college that way and uh and yet uh, syracuse was phenomenal i think i did tell you some stories uh in class about our education and, and some of the things that i felt were really um, responsible for, for helping me get uh, to where I've gotten in this career so far. Uh, but I think the biggest thing was what I mentioned earlier, just that competitiveness uh, and the culture there and, and what was created by all the greats that came before us. No, that's definitely a great, that's great thing. And how you mentioned uh, one of your good friends that he was a senior when you were a freshman, Dave Passion. You said, John, uh, that was the one that picked you up from the airport. So just for clarification, so their air, the airplane ticket was correct because you wanted to get there on orientation day, right? The airplane ticket was correct. I was the fool that was incorrect. Like gotcha. everything, everybody else was on point except for me and my big brother who actually let me convince him that I was, <laughs> I needed to go. Gotcha. I'm not putting it on him. <laughs> I am not. He had other things to do. He was studying at, at, you know, political science and getting his PhD. He had a job, you know, waiting tables. And, yeah, and the, uh, the least thing he had to worry about was about you getting on the, on the flight to go to school. Right. Exactly. Yeah. He was basically like, think about it. If he was you, like he's, he was right around your age and here's his teenage, you know, little brother coming to visit him in Chicago for a couple of days to have fun. Yeah. And we did, we had a great time. Maybe too much fun because I got my ticket mixed up and my dates mixed up. But you know what? If that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have had this great, you know, uh, content for your podcast. 
Yeah, that definitely. That's without a doubt. And maybe it was just a little prank <laughs> you wanted to do before he sent you to to college. Like, oh, my little brother's leaving to college. I'm going to do him one last prank before he leaves. Um, but yeah, so throughout the course of me uh, getting to know you and also hearing the stories of Syracuse, I know you did graduate like some of pretty up there in your class when you graduated. And you were one of the top dogs at, at Syracuse when you graduated from your class. Uh, but when it came to after college for you, how would you how was the process to find a job? You know, I know today I think it's so easy because the internet, uh, social media back then, I, I don't know how it was because uh, I don't, when exactly did you graduate from Syracuse? If you went, they were in 93, right? Yep. 97. So you graduated in 97. I was born in 98. So you graduated from college when I wasn't even born yet. Um, so don't rub yeah. it in, man. I, no, I don't want to. I don't want to <laughs> say it that way. I'm just trying to say the times and just give an age of, of, of where I'm coming from. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, perspective. So, I got you. So yeah. So how would just the the networking thing process for you back then and for broadcasters back in the day, especially for especially for Dave Pash since he graduated earlier than you? Exactly. No, it was, it was tricky. You know, he he started in West Virginia, uh, doing uh, stuff on the radio in West Virginia, and then uh, moved to Detroit. Uh, that's uh, that's what Dave did. And then when Dave left Detroit to go to Chicago to be involved with the Chicago Blackhawks broadcast and other stuff in Chicago, that's what opened up the job in Detroit, which I ended up getting hired for. So not only do we have the connection here in Phoenix, but we had a connection to Detroit kind of because he left and I came. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'd say that it was very difficult to know where there was going to be openings uh, you know, what openings were available for people that were coming out of college and those types of things. And also consider that, that there were so many less avenues for content, you know, because there's no internet yeah. back then. 97, the internet was brand new. It was, it was just getting going and there was very little that anybody was doing of note uh, in broadcasting and uh, making money for that matter. So uh, it wasn't really an option for a job. And so I, I kind of kept my options open. Ideally, I wanted to be able to do play-by-play -play or have some access to doing play-by-play. -play. And so I kept battling back and forth. Is it better for me to go to a small market and start doing some play-by-play -play at some level, whether it's minor league baseball or whether it's high school sports or, or small college sports? Or should I try to get a job in a big market on a sports radio station? Because all of a sudden now, every big market around the country had all sports radio stations. That just started in the 90s, Marco. You might not believe that, but it's yeah, not much older crazy. than that. Like I know, yeah. like sports radio, you would have thought it's been there forever. No, it hasn't. Uh, they used to have people come in at night on the news stations and do like a three-hour sports show, but it wasn't any all-day sports talk. It just didn't exist. Yeah. So now all of a sudden it is. So that was great for me timing-wise, because there were stations that were going to need people uh, at the hiring level, at entry level, let's put it at that. Uh, so I got hired in Detroit, but it was after several months of, of exploring, let's just put it that way. I did get some opportunities that I wasn't interested in, and I uh, put my name in for opportunities to people that weren't interested in me. So it kind of went both ways. There was definitely some rejection, which I had to deal with and understand and, and accept and know that it was just a matter of time. And eventually I'm going to get a, get a shot. And so it boiled down to a couple chances. There was a, a gentleman who's now the play-by-play -play voice of the Utah jazz, David Locke, who does an amazing job. And uh, we've stayed uh, close over the years. He met me at the San Francisco airport uh, because I was living there and at the, and he was uh, like going through uh, connecting flights and he was looking with the for, right ticket, right? With the right ticket. Yeah. He had, I think he had the right, <laughs> he was a professional. He had the right ticket. Uh, 
And, uh, and so he had an opening for a guy to come in to uh, the fan in Salt Lake City and uh, produce a morning show and do some updates and like a sports center show. And uh, I, I actually uh, seriously thought about it, even though the money was not enough for me to even pay rent. I was like, you know, I'll figure it out. And uh, right along that, when that happened, Dave Bash left WDFN, Sports Radio, The Fan, in Detroit. And uh, that job opened up and it just kind of coincided with my brother getting married in Chicago. The next day after the wedding, I flew to Detroit to be interviewed for the job, flew home to San Francisco, got the call and the offer. And within a couple of weeks, I was on my way to the D and uh, starting my career. And uh, what, you know, like I said, what a great city to start in. At the time, the Red Wings were the thing. They had just won the Stanley Cup. And they were on their way to winning back to back. And I got to cover the Red Wings. Uh, and I'd never really, you know, known much about hockey growing up in the Bay Area. Luckily, my boys at the Qs tried to convince me it was the greatest sport ever invented. So I did end up learning a lot about hockey. And probably more so because I was playing Sega all the time with them in late nights. That's probably where I learned the most hockey, uh, playing video games, and then going to some Syracuse Crunch games in the AHL. So that prepared me a little bit. Uh, the winters in Syracuse prepared me for the winters in Detroit, so that was helpful. Uh, and, uh, you know, then I met my wife about uh, two months after moving to Detroit. And so all of a sudden now I've got like a built-in uh, family and social life. And, uh, you know, that was super awesome. Now, I didn't marry her on the spot. It took a little while, you know, but, but I met her and the relationship started and, and, uh, and met uh, other friends through her and, and through working and uh, had a really great six years in Detroit. I still have such a fond uh, spot in my heart for that city and for people that I've met from there and, and kept those relationships intact and really getting an inside glimpse of the glory days of sports radio. And I've told this story in class and I've told it to a lot of people and I, I will always tell it, but I mean, the, the, the staff we had in Detroit, the uh, salaries that our afternoon show hosts were making, all these things would blow people's minds, uh, but what we were doing and what we were able to accomplish uh, in a garage, basically, in the middle of the hood as well. Uh, yeah. it, was, it was quite an experience. Hey, it's Marco, and I don't know about you, but sometimes buying flowers can be a little bit pricey and a little bit of a mess or very interesting. But you know where I go every time I need some flowers last minute or for a special occasion? Ivy Floor Expressions. They have the best deals, also great flowers and great, great gifts. So make sure you visit them at the corner of Vine Street and Imperial Avenue in El Central California. Make sure to come into the store or even get delivery right at your front door for the best flower gifts. Ivy Floor Expressions in El Central California. So something that I, I really enjoyed so far is that like when you said about Detroit and how they were winning the Stanley Cup and you were there to cover it um it feels like I'm kind of going down the same road hopefully it happens you know with the Suns team you know if, it'll be awesome with the first season I'm doing the Suns in the Spanish uh spectrum of things they win a championship that'll be pretty awesome at the same time the first championship in franchise history that'll be pretty sick that'll be just phenomenal uh, but something that I, I do remember you mentioning uh, throughout your course of the class that I was with at Cronkite is how you were able to also get in, involved with the golf world. And the biggest thing is you were able to work with, learn from uh, one of the greats in this broadcasting world by the, a gentleman by the name of Jim Nance. So how was that a thing that came about and just 
how was that for you being able to learn from one of the greats? Well, I don't know if people say he was one of the greats back then, but you were working with one that people were saying like, oh my gosh, this guy's going to be legendary at the end of his career. Yeah, no, he already was well on his way uh, in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. You consider, you know, as a young broadcaster, him being involved in the 1986 Masters uh, with Jack Nicholas winning, you know, at the age of 46. That's a, a, an event that stands out in a lot of people's minds. It does stand out in my mind as well because uh, I was a young kid, but I remember watching with my dad. And I remember the significance of it for my dad. And, and for that reason, it, it was had significance for me. Um, and Jim Nance being on the call of that, you know, I think in, maybe in his late 20s or early 30s, you know, and, and uh, it just kind of paved the way and continued to do bigger and bigger events. And so, you know, by the time I got to Detroit, he was a massive name and we had not met. Uh, you know, I didn't I, I didn't have a chance to meet him during my time at Syracuse, uh, he's not a, a Syracuse guy. He's a University of Houston guy, for those who don't know. Uh, was a uh, roommate of Freddie Couples because he was a golfer too, Jim Nance, uh, mm -hmm. but not quite the golfer that Freddie Couples became. But, uh, you know, it, it's such a cool story to hear him uh, retell about them kind of doing the mock masters interviews in the, in the Butler cabin when they were in college. And then, you know, they actually do it in real life. And I, I have such a healthy belief for, for stuff like that and visualizing things and then having them come true. Uh, and so this is kind of all involved in that because uh, I'm, I'm just covering my first PGA tour event outside Flint, Michigan, the Buick open at Warwick Hills golf and country club in Grand Blank, Michigan. And I just started, you know, doing, golf coverage uh, because I had begged my program director uh, to let me have a golf show. I found out Michiganders are absolutely on fire for the sport of golf. They have like stats through the roof with regards to Browns played and how much fervor there is for the sport. And I quickly felt that when I moved there in 1997. And so being, you know, a passionate golfer in high school, uh, kind of putting the sticks away for the most part through college, but then getting to Michigan, I got the passion back. And now I, w I wanted to, talk about it on the radio with all these other people that I knew were into it. So unfortunately my program director was not into it. He hates golf, <laughs> still hates golf. Uh, so he gave me 6am to 7am in the morning on Saturday mornings. And that was my first ever golf broadcasting foray. It was called the first tee. And I remember going out to the Buick open and thinking, wouldn't that be awesome if I could get Jim Nance and interview him for my show? You know, here I am this, you know, 22 year old who doesn't know anything, but I, I just figure why wouldn't he want to talk to a random dude from Detroit about golf? Let's go. And so I go outside the CBS compound and I kind of stalked the guy, to be honest with you. I went up to, you know, the main office and I said, Hey, you know, I'm a, a local uh, sports radio guy in Detroit. Would love to have a few minutes with Jim to talk about uh, the tournament if he has a chance. And they're like, yeah, uh, he's in a meeting right now. Just uh, maybe hang out and, and you can catch him on the way out. Well, I, don't I mean, think I'm, that would happen in today's world now. I'm pretty, pretty sure. Don't you think? No, they probably wouldn't have let me back there. Yeah, no, I would yeah. have, to, have to have the right CBS credential to even get into the compound. But yeah, I wandered back there with my, you know, press credential and I waited outside with my giant tape recorder, the Marantz as we called it. And, uh, I sat there for a solid hour, hour and a half and no Jim Nance. And finally, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty close to giving up, but uh, it, stuff starts to percolate in the trailer. I heard, you know, people getting up and, and so I said, oh, maybe he's coming out. And, and here he comes. And uh, I introduced myself. I told him what I was doing. I said, hey, you know, I, I'm a fan of your work and I would love to get a few minutes if you have it uh, just to talk about the tournament. 
So he's like, you know what? I'm on my way to another meeting, but if you want to do it, we can do it right here. Let's, let's walk and talk. So you got to be ready for that, right, Marco? If someone oh, says definitely. that, you're going to be ready to walk and talk. You just hope you don't trip over yourself. Okay, to be honest, before you go on, John, uh, the time of this recording, it's it was a Monday, so Monday, June 14th. To be quite honest, when you, you want today, when I asked you, hey, when do you want when do you want to do it? And he said, you want to do it today? I was like, dang, he got me a little bit off guard, but I was like, you know what? Let's just do it. You know, we got to do it. This this is this is the business. You got to get. Sometimes you're 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 caught like um, unprepared. I'm not saying unprepared, but like in a situation like you got to do it. You know, I'm pretty sure that's what you were doing at the same time. Exactly. And, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do my best while I walk and hope I don't bite it in the middle of this parking lot, <laughs> interviewing Jim Nance on his way to his car. Uh, and so we did a few minutes. And as we wrapped up, and I thanked him, he said uh, something like, listen, John, I could tell you're really passionate about golf. And that's great. That's going to take you a long ways in this business. Something to that effect. You know, it's not verbatim. And that stuck with me. Like, it was like, he didn't need to say that. I just had like three to four minutes with him asking questions about the Buick Open. And, you know, I think it was unique because you're talking about Detroit. Obviously, it's a huge sports town. And everybody at that time, it was Red Wings, Lions, Pistons, Tigers, Michigan, Michigan State, everything coming at you 100 miles an hour. But for me, the whole focus on this talk was the Buick Open. It was about this golf tournament. It was about all the things going into it and how, what it meant to the community. And, and, and for some reason, it struck a, a, enough of a chord for him to you know, spend a, a, a little extra time, even though he was in a rush. So that meant something to me. And the next time I saw him, he immediately remembered me. We immediately had a conversation about golf. And I was thinking to myself, uh, you know, this is this is a, a pro. This is how you're supposed to, uh, you know, behave as a pro. It, it, this is he's, he's basically setting a phenomenal example for me because this is how I want to be, too. If there's ever going to be a time, you know, for me to help people, I want to do that. But at this time, it was me looking for help. And just a little bit of inspiration goes a long way. And Marco, I know you know that as well yeah. as anybody I've met. I know you know that. So that took me on this path and said, all right, I'm going to do some more golf. And sure enough, after I leave Detroit and I come to Phoenix, one of my first gigs is with CBS Sports uh, at Pebble Beach, interviewing all the celebrities in the pro and getting ready to take all that info into the trailer to share with Jim Nance and his right-hand man, Tom Spencer, for the CBS golf broadcast of the AT&T uh, Pebble Beach Pro-Am. So that, uh, you know, all led to that eventually getting to basically call him uh, a colleague in some essence, although he's an all-time you know, great and, uh, and still is. Uh, and unfortunately, we didn't get him in the classroom. He was ready to do it and, and all over it. And then, you know, this crazy schedule uh, he has in the spring of going from March Madness to the Masters uh, you know, I don't, I don't cry for him. Believe me, I think yeah, it's an no. unbelievable <laughs> deal, right? We'd all kill for that gig, uh, yeah. but uh, he does such a great job and has been an inspiration for for a lot of people, not just me. And it's it's interesting because he's like the the non cute uh, guy that that I have in my list of, of greats. Most of the other ones are all orange, like me. No, and, and something that I remember when you were asking like some people you like listening to when it comes to broadcasting, I did mention obviously uh, Joe Davis at the same time. and did say Jim Nance. And when you told me like, we might be getting Jim in class, I'm like, 
you're kidding, right? And I was just so stoked about it, you know, but obviously when it comes to scheduling, sometimes they conflict and stuff happens, you know, so hopefully if you end up teaching again, hopefully you think of me, if he comes back to class, that'll be pretty awesome to do. Um, so, but yeah, it's so far, it's been a great, great show right now. John Bloom from the Phoenix Suns uh, radio broadcaster, a great moment to be a Phoenix Suns broadcaster at this moment, you know, after so many years, 11 years without being in the playoffs, and now they're in the Western Conference Finals. The last time they were in the playoffs was when uh, Steve Nash and Amari Sotomayor were on the same team, and they lost against the Lakers, who eventually won the championship. Uh, but at the same time, John, it's just getting to know your story has been inspiring to me, and hopefully whoever's listening is is inspired, you know, because some people have that doubt. Just how do I get started? What if my background doesn't isn't enough? to get me motivated or what if because of my background, I have no chance to make stuff happen. You know, like you coming from the Bay area and moving across the country, sometimes you have to make that type of sacrifice to choose your dreams. And then when it comes to me, uh, I grew up in a trailer, a very low income family. At the same time, my, my dad going through some medical issues. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just a rough time, you know, but I, I think that's something that people use to their, their advantage, taking those small, deep and dark moments and use them as motivation, not to bring them down, but as motivation. And I think that's something that you did as well. You know, during that time that you, you couldn't find a job and you have to intern, you have to go back to California and, uh, you know, have to move across the country, leave your friends and family. It, it takes a special kind of person to see that as motivation and actually pursue the dreams. So won't you think, John? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a obviously you have to be made up a certain way, but you also have to have opportunity. And even though our opportunities and, and our li- lines to opportunity are totally different, talking about your story and my story, and man, I'm, I'm just so inspired by what you've been through uh, and pursued, uh, you know, through all that and, and, and continue to do so. And then I can't wait to see where you go from here. But for me, it was, uh, you know, I, look, I'm, I'm blessed. I, I was, I still am very grateful for uh, the way I was brought up and raised and the family that, that I was lucky enough to be born into. Uh, so lucky. Uh, and, and so it takes that. It takes some luck. It takes opportunity. But then when it comes to, uh, you know, how you make the most of your opportunity, I think that that has a lot to do with um, commitment and it has a lot to do with your work ethic. Um, mm. that's, that's how you're going to really stand out. And that's how you're really going to move forward and get better. You know, people talk about, you know, greatness or skill or passion and all these different things, right? Uh, but for me, it's like if, if you, first of all, you, you want to identify what you can be passionate about. Identify what you are passionate about because I feel like that is going to enable you, if you can tap into that passion, to be great at what you want to do. You know, there's very few things probably that every human being can be great at. Some people are built certain ways and they, they're great at like every sport they pick up and it's just infuriating, isn't it? But it, it, yeah. there, are, there are certain athletes, right, that they just have this innate ability. Maybe it's the hand-eye coordination, whatever it happens to be. Uh, there's a skill there. But when it comes to like picking your job of choice, your career of choice, um, I find that the most successful people are doing what they're passionate about. Uh, it's not just talking about sports. I'm, t- I'm saying in general, uh, and, and I've learned that over the years. And for me, I'm, I'm thankful I was able to tap into that early and then follow it 
And even though it, it hasn't been, you know, this direct path to success, like I was maybe envisioning back in the day when I was leaving Syracuse, as you said, at the top of my class and, and feeling great about my chances of being a professional sportscaster, I didn't really have like, you know, the, the exact definition of that. What, what does that mean about being a, a successful professional sportscaster? I don't know. Uh, I think I always just felt like if I was able to stay in this business and be at the action and, and make a living doing that, that would be a success. And, uh, and then, you know, y your ideas of success change because for me, it changed. I didn't really ever spend a ton of time envisioning what my family life would be like. I was so focused on wanting to be a sportscaster since I was 11 years old that I didn't really let my brain go into that. I'd love to be a dad place. And maybe wouldn't that be cool raising kids and, and coaching them in sports and being involved in their lives and, and being a great husband and, and learning how to do all these things uh, that I never thought I'd do as a husband and a dad and, and all that part of my life that really kind of came in secondarily, but yet took over, right? Because it was never going to be the priority because I was so tunnel vision, sportscaster, sportscaster. That's what I'm here to do. And uh, I'm, I'm really lucky that I was able to, you know, uh, get into the situation where I went to a place, you know, I, I went there, took a risk, flew to Detroit to start this career. And, uh, and then, you know, by and here I go, I meet a woman of my dreams and, and end up starting a family with her, you know, years later and, and now have two born and raised daughters in Phoenix, uh, that are 12 and 14. And, and that's my life right there is my family. And, and, and I've been lucky enough to continue following the dream in parallel. I look at it and, and I look at some of the ways my, my friends around the country have, uh, taken some of the paths that they've taken. Uh, and you know, you can look at it a lot of different ways. I don't look at it with regret at all. There's no, never like a situation where, oh, I think I'd be this superstar in broadcasting if I didn't settle down in my mid twenties. You know, I don't look at it that way at all. I still think I've got this long runway ahead of me. I can't wait to see where my career goes from here. I feel like the, you know, my, my best is yet to come. And that's hard to say probably for a lot of people in their mid forties and other industries, but I feel like in our industry, uh, it's attainable. No, definitely. Without a doubt. It's something that some people don't get their like big break, if you want to call it that way, until like their 50s or 60s. I'm not saying you're going to get uh, your big break at 50 or 60, because I, I know that you've done some great, great things, you know, and being able to work under a legendary broadcaster, a Hall of Fame broadcaster like Al McCoy. It's for me, that's that's a dream of itself, you know, to be able to be under the mentorship of someone that I don't know if, if the stars aligned and. If God does a works in mysterious ways, they are able to fulfill his role once he retires. I think just having that direct mentorship with him is something that anyone who wants to get into this business would would aspire to have. You know, for example, I know I keep mentioning Joe, but when when Joe was coming on to the Dodgers, he was uh, hired for fifty road games while Vin was doing the home games. You know, and being able to put and be put in that situation one of the greatest to ever do it and be able to do some games on the road while he's little by little getting out of the seat and you're going to be the one filling in. It's something amazing. So from your perspective that you're actually living it, just how has that been for you? It's been absolutely everything uh, you could imagine. And then some, um, I think that the frustrating part, you know, is, is just how COVID has changed everything. And, you know, when I do let my brain wander 
to the future of radio broadcasting in the NBA, it can sometimes be a little dark uh, because a lot of my colleagues and our colleagues, I'm going to include you as being part of the Suns Spanish broadcast. You're right in the middle of this whole thing. A lot of the people we work with that do the same thing we do feel like the, the changes that have been made over the last year, year and a half are not going to go back, meaning uh, broadcasters not traveling on the road uh, and being in the arena to call games. Now, uh, you've had a taste of it. I've called games off of a monitor uh, all year for the road games for the Suns, and it's just not the way this craft is meant to be done. Um, and, you know, we, we've, we've spent numerous classes talking about it. Uh, I've talked about it uh, a ton. My head has been spinning uh, with people around the league and with people here in Phoenix um, and yet, uh, it's, I'm not going to let it damper the experience I'm getting with this basketball team and looking at the big picture. You're right on the money. Getting to work with Al McCoy. Dream come true. You're talking about an 88-year-old man who still calls the game at a high level. He's already in the Hall of Fame uh, in Springfield, Massachusetts. And he, you know, again, he's in his 49th year calling Phoenix Suns basketball. I mean, how many people do the same thing for 49 years in any respect of life, let alone be the voice of an NBA team for that long? Something that probably will never be touched. And uh, and it has been awesome getting to know him. It's this, this arc of our relationship is a really unique one because I remember filling in doing a radio show probably 16, 17 years ago. Uh, local radio show here in Phoenix, and I called the Suns uh, to see if I could get Al McCoy to come on, and he did. Uh, and it was this like awesome deal where I got to have a, a guy who was already in the Hall of Fame back then come on uh, and talk about the, the Phoenix Suns, a team that I was a big fan of. And I hadn't really known all that much about Al because growing up in the Bay Area, I didn't get Suns radio or TV for that matter. And I had heard about him uh, in 1993 when the Suns made it to the finals against the Bulls, because that was the first time I heard Shazam. It was the first time I heard a couple of his calls and highlights, national highlights, and I was so wrapped up in the team uh, that finally I was like, oh, the radio broadcaster's awesome too. You know, so now I got to be you know, a fan of all the players, and you tack on uh, you know, something so near and dear to me, the, the radio uh, call. And so uh, now I get him on this radio show. We have a really nice conversation for about 10 minutes. Uh, and then the next day, the boss of the station, the program director, uh, hits me up and, and says, how'd you get Al McCoy on the show? That's awesome. And I was like, yeah, I didn't realize that was that big of a deal, but that's huge. Uh, and, and from then on, uh, getting a chance to, to get the, the gig uh, basically uh, taking over after he and Tim sign off and doing the postgame shows. Uh, and back then we did a postgame for home and road you know, both because it was the seven seconds or less Steve Nash sons and they had it going. Uh, and so that was my first taste of working with the team, uh, and with Al. And then that relationship has gotten so much stronger over the years. And I think it's why I've gotten the opportunity to, to fill in for him when he's not able to call games and, and to then take over and do the road games, uh, you know, and, and we'll see what happens with the future. I, you know, the, no, there's no guarantees in life. I, I clearly have, have understood that. Uh, and, and grown to understand that moving forward. But I think everybody over there knows what I hope to do, what my goal is. And I think a lot of them uh, are on board. At least they've, they've said that to my face. So uh, we'll wait and see. But Al deserves to go as long as he wants. He has made that clear that as long as his body will allow him to do this, he wants to do it. And I think he deserves it. Uh, he is a Hall of Famer in more 
than just uh, one way of being a broadcaster. Uh, he's a Hall of Fame human being in my book as well. And that's the thing that matters most to me. Uh, and I'm glad I've gotten to, to know him over the years. And, and getting to work with him and Tim has been such a thrill. That's the real thrill. Now I'm in the gym calling the action, doing what little Johnny back in the day was hoping he'd be able to do on that green couch. It's all happening now. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I love sharing that story because I do, I, I do like to tell kids who, uh, you know, have big dreams to follow them. And sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes, uh, you know, that can be very difficult. And sometimes it's so difficult that you can't even let it be a, a thought in your head because you feel like it's so unattainable. Well, I'm not as nearly as great of an example of that as you are, Marco. And, and so I will share your story uh, and what you've done to get out of a trailer park, uh, to, 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 you know, advance as far as you have to this point. But like I said, now you've got high expectations on you because I can't wait to see where you go from here. Uh, and so I know you're up to it and, and I will continue telling your story more than I'll tell my own. That's for sure. No, I appreciate that. It's, uh, it's more of an honor for me for just hearing those words. It really means a lot, you know, and, I, and the same thing, if, if I'm able to be any inspiration to any colleagues or any future colleagues that want to do this business, I'm always open to helping them out. You know, obviously I'm not the the prime example, like up there as of right now, but hopefully one day, Lord willing, it will happen. And I'm be able to be that kind of person that is able to help these kids that want to do this business because, you know, like there's so many people have helped me, you, John, are one of them uh, to get into this business and get to learn how to be better. So hopefully one day I could do that. Once again, we would like to mention our sponsor for today's show, IV Floral Expressions in El Centro, California. Remember to contact them at 760-222-7897 or contact them on Facebook at Floral Expressions. They even have a website www.ivfloralexpressions.com or visit them at the Purple Corner on Vine Street and Imperial Avenue in El Centro. Uh, but, but John, uh, my next question for you is, is just um, something I've enjoyed in my time here in Phoenix. I've only been here for around two years. Yeah, I'm going for two years before I transferred over from California. Um, obviously, I was going into ASU and the sun season was starting then all of a sudden COVID hits. And I, if I'll be honest with you, I didn't really start listening to the post-game show until I actually got really involved with the Suns, you know, because I would just be at home doing my own thing. And then COVID hit, boom, I'm back in California. There's no there's no basketball games. And I came in here, the post-game show, when you were doing uh, some of them on the road and when it came to the bubble and stuff like that. But something I've enjoyed is just the fan base of Planet Orange, just how – they're so plugged in as of right now and they they know you you know and i enjoy how when you talk to them they feel a sense of connection it's not like this random broadcaster that is just doing his job and doesn't care about the fans i think with you it's a different type of thing you know when you share the i was driving um on my way to work and you mentioned the story about harper about Harper when she mentioned, or he mentioned, I forgot who, if it was he or she, uh, that LeBron James was a giver-upper. And you said it multiple <laughs> times. And I was like, wow, like he's really, he really makes people feel connected to the organization, feel connected to to something. that They're not just another fan of the stands that they're, oh, they're paying their money to watch this game. They're actually connected because of what you do in the post game. So just how have you been able to enjoy that role with the Suns and having this fan base getting to know you, your story, and just be able to be a, a, a 
a person of the people, if you, if you might say that that way. Yeah, I love it. I, I mean, I, I think I think part of it is I, I've always loved interacting with people. Um, it's part of the reason why I love playing golf as a single and going showing up and, and getting assigned to a foursome and, and having three random people that all of a sudden I'm going to be spending four hours with and learning about. Uh, and, and, you know, from a standpoint of the postgame show, I, I look at it as I'm one of them. And I think that that's why Planet Orange, as I like to affectionately call them, because, you know, now we've got the Valley branding, which is off the charts. I love it. Uh, but it, it, and we have PHX, obviously, which was a brand for a while. Um, but I think Planet Orange is all encompassing. Because, you know, like, for example, last night after the sweep of the Nuggets, we took calls from Australia, England, Nashville, New Jersey, Miami, all over. Right? These are Suns fans. These are, and, and why would a dude who was born and raised in the Bay Area who became a Suns fan judge anybody from anywhere on the planet being a Suns fan? I mean, you can come from anywhere and yep. become a supporter of a team. And so uh, I love the fact that that's the case. I love that we have these relationships that have been developed over over a decade. I mean, we're talking this is year 14. So some of these callers have called in since I started and even before so when K-Ray was taking phone calls. Uh, and so, you know, they are uh, diehards. Uh, and, and like I said, I think what um, enables this bond to happen is uh, it's genuine, is they know I'm one of them. You know, it's real. And when you sense, it's like what book says, what all the, the younger set says, I'm sure you've uh, used it. Real recognizes real, right? Uh, and, and it is the case when it comes to even being a fan. That's like, the case, you know, when it comes yeah. to being a player. But it also is the case when it comes to being a fan. And all those people that went out to Sky Harbor to, to welcome that team back last night, that's real. And I loved mm -hmm. it. Last night, we're basically developing this on the radio as it's going on. And in the back of my mind, Marco, I already had my boss telling me, hey, go as long as you want. If you want to go all the way to midnight, go all the way to midnight. I'm thinking to myself, midnight? I started the broadcast at 2 o'clock this afternoon. I'm not going to midnight. <laughs> uh, but I signed off at 1148. You know, we almost made it to midnight. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I want to keep going until the team lands at Sky Harbor because I know there's hundreds of people out there. They got the postgame show on. Let's keep them entertained all the way till it, until they got the team there. And uh, so we did it. And I, and I didn't let on to my producers until we were probably three hours deep already on a four-and-a-half-hour postgame show. And I said, you know, I think we could do this. I think we could get all the way through. And, and what that is, is my passion as a fan. It's me understanding that Suns fans weren't done yet. Like this was a huge night for this yeah. group. And, uh, and I wanted to be a part of it and I felt great about it. And, and of all the nights of coming home after losses and sometimes 30 and 40 point embarrassing losses during this stretch of 10 years without the playoffs, uh, you know, there were nights where I was miserable and it would take a toll on me, my psyche, and even my family would pay the price sometimes because of, you know, the mood that I'd be in, <laughs> basically feeling like I was a therapist to Planet Orange for a while. And, uh, and so to have it be this way, it makes it all worthwhile. It really does. It makes every single one of those nights worth it because this is so sweet. To be in the role that I'm in, that we're in, to be a part of this, to, to soak up all the success that we're seeing from this basketball team that has done it the right way too. Doesn't that make it even better the way they did it? 
Yeah, no, definitely, especially over in Denver and just seeing how people, as, for example, the one that's been uh, up and rising when it comes to Twitter and um, the, the raps, Mr. Zanezor, when he came up with the brew and put nuggets on top of it, just started eating it. You know, it's just it's it's been great to see like the fan base just reacting and embracing this basketball team, you know, like last night when you saw uh, the game. Well, when it was a, actually, it was a Sunday. It was an, oh, wait, is today Monday? Wait, today's Monday. I'm trying <laughs> to remember the, the, the day. I'm, I'm like in the plane situation now. <laughs> like right? how you had with Syracuse, but I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but when it, when it came to looking at the broadcast, the TV broadcast on, on uh, TNT, seeing how there was just so many Suns fans, like I don't remember last time the Suns, fans made that type of trip to support their team like there was more Suns fans and Nuggets fans over in Ball Arena you know and so, something that I think was going on is that even the Nuggets fans are like hey I'm selling my ticket I'm gonna sell for 50 I bought it for 50 bucks sell for 75 make some money off of it you know and and give these Suns fans a, a run for their money and enjoy a great great moment you know but just seeing how the fans even as well going to Sky Harbor and seeing DeAndre Ayton come from the top of his car and just giving those fist bumps to the fans. It was like an historic night without a doubt because man, the Suns back in the Western conference finals and just being in the roles that we're in, it feels so, so sweet, John, for real as it does. Yeah. And, and the, the, you know, this is the second round Marco, like they, they right. just won the second round and there were hundreds of people mm-hmm. at 1130 at night on a Sunday out there to greet them. So just wait, if they are able to make it, all the way to the finals, man. You are going to be blown away with what this fan base is about if you aren't already. And I'm all for it. I am so thrilled that it's here. I didn't anticipate it being like this this quick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were there were signs of them taking off, and certainly you go back to the bubble in, in August, and, and that 8-0 run was fantastic. But to think that Western Conference Finals in 2021 – no, I wasn't ready Crazy. for this, but I am ready for this. I was born ready for this, but I wasn't predicting it was going to happen at this case. And now, you know, we get a week to just kind of sit back, see how the Clippers and Jazz play out, what's going to go down in that series. Uh, and obviously it's going to make for a different matchup uh, depending on who wins that one. And then you look at, uh, you know, the chances of winning it all. If you take a look at, at some of the analytics and the people that crunch the numbers right now, it's coming up with the Phoenix Suns on the very top of that list next to the odds. Yeah. And that that is pretty, pretty enticing, I think, right now. That's pretty exciting. I know there are some fans that, that don't let themselves get caught up because they feel like they've been burned so many times in the past by the Phoenix Suns and gotten close, you know, the, for those who have been fans since all the way back in 68 when they first came to the Valley. Uh, well, then obviously you remember them getting close against the Celtics in 76 and then mm-hmm. against the Bulls in 93. That's the only two times in the finals. This is the 10th time in the conference finals. So there's been a bunch of those. Uh, and so you could you could look at it and you could say, okay, well, if they've only made it to the finals two out of nine, that means they're two and seven when they get to the Western Conference Finals. They need to get that third one here, and maybe three times will really, really will be the charm for yeah. this basketball crazy city. And I think the rest of the country, Marco, is finding out just how basketball crazy this town is. Yeah, without a doubt, we're seeing how. Because when you look at other organizations like the Cardinals, the Coyotes, the Diamondbacks, uh, they came later on. Uh, the, the Phoenix Suns have been here forever. You know, they, they've been able to establish their fan base for a very, very long time compared to the other organizations here in Arizona. And uh, to be honest, if 
if we're able to get a ring in this season, it would be something sweet. And something I told you in the post game show, I was like, you know, what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna call John see if see if he's able to take my call if 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 I'm worthy to 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 go on the air with him and share the airwaves. Uh, <laughs> it just feels like a like a Cinderella story. It feels like an, an Avengers story in, in a sense because you look at the 11 years that the team was out of the playoffs. At the same time, you see how they had a 19 win season about two years ago. And then uh, you go to the bubble. Well, Monty Williams comes into the team, changes the whole organization when Ricky Rubio was the point guard of the Suns. Then you go into the bubble with a chance to go back into the playoffs. You get a perfect 8-0, and and you just miss the playoffs by half a game. And people are saying this team is going some great, great avenues, some great direction. But then they decide to trade Ricky Rubio away and they get CP3. And people have been saying that, oh, see, well, back then I was one of them. I'll be honest. I was one of them saying how CP3, like he's done. He's only coming here to collect some money, get some retirement, um, be with James Jones in the front office. I came on to give me an assistant coach job so I could be head coach eventually. That was that was my way of thinking back then. But then you get Jay Crowder, a player that was on the Miami Heat coming off the NBA Finals in the bubble, and you see them playing some really, really great defense. Devin Booker taking on his uh, a role, being a little bit more humble, being able to pass the ball a whole lot more. Yes, the maturity are still some issues, but being able to see how this team has come more as a unit has been phenomenal. you know. And then you see how they finish second in the West, and you just look back and you're like, oh, my gosh. We just beat the Lakers, the NBA champions, and we just beat Nikola Jokic, the NBA MVP. And now we're going against maybe the number one with the Utah Jazz or the Clippers, who haven't been winning win the season, uh, the series with them in the regular season. But it, it just feels like it's a story that's yet to be finished, written, and it's just phenomenal to watch throughout the course. Exactly, and so many different guys that are easy to root for on this team. You know, the the majority of Suns fans are, are really. Uh, just welling up with emotion for Devin Booker because he's the guy that's been here longest on this squad. Uh, and then, you know, you put these other pieces around him, uh, you know, the homegrown guys like Mikael Bridges and DeAndre Aiden and Cam Johnson. And then you bring in the guys you talked about, like Chris Paul and, and Jay Crowder, who certainly need a lot of uh, love and credit for, for this team advancing to uh, as far as they've gotten. Uh, and then the role players, too, like guys like Cam Payne and Torrey Craig and Dario Saric and, and on down the list even to the guys that aren't really seeing the floor right now, Langston Galloway and Etuan Moore and, uh, you know, Frank Kaminsky. These guys have all made an impact on this group. They're all part of the group because this group is so close uh, and, and plays so hard for each other. And that's what makes people gravitate to uh, teams, I think, a lot of the time. When you can tell that the team's having fun, you can tell that the team is playing for each other, that they are out there, uh, you know, as a true team. Uh, then it's it's very easy to to cheer for a team like that, and I think uh, they are going to get quite a few bandwagon fans jumping on board. And and to them, I say welcome. The more the merrier. I, I don't really yeah. judge. You can jump on board whenever you want. Uh, it, it's a positive thing to be a fan and to support a team. So I would never turn that away. And I would tell my fellow fans to, to do the same. And, and, you know, you don't have to show them up and say, oh, I've been a fan since 50 or you know, 40 years from ago, or I've rooted for the team way before Deb. Okay, that's okay. And you should love every second of what you're seeing this team do right now, just as yeah. much as the people who just came because they love DeAndre Ayton and it became a fan a couple of years ago. They're going to love every second too. And it's just, uh, it's a great experience 
uh, it's, it's really neat to be a part of. Uh, there's certain things that I wish were different, like getting a chance to actually meet Chris Paul and Jay Crowder in person would be kind of cool. I haven't done that yet. Uh, you know, being back in a room with Monty Williams and getting to glean the knowledge that I did from him doing all the coaches interviews before games on the road was, was such a thrill, but we haven't had those opportunities to do any one-on-ones and stuff like that because our industry's kind of morphed through this whole pandemic. And, and I, I know I touched on it briefly earlier, uh, but I, I do hope, I still have a, a healthy amount of hope that uh, that will return to at least close to the way it used to be uh, for next season. I understand that it's probably not going to change for these last couple rounds of the playoffs, but uh, hopefully next season the powers that be understand the importance of their own team broadcasters having those relationships and roles within the team, and, and we can get back to doing it. John Bloom, Phoenix Suns, a radio broadcaster here on the Auto Sports Podcast. And that was actually my next uh, question when it comes to the pandemic. You know, obviously, we met, we're talking about the Phoenix Suns, and hopefully they actually get to where we want them to be. And, you know, we just came out. People, There's people that say they were still in it. Some people say they were past it. Some people say we're still kind of the beginning stages of it. Um, but we know what has been going on with COVID-19 and just the pandemic and how it's affected everyone's lives. You know, like you said, it's affected how us in the industry are, are doing our job, you know, like for me, I'm not the biggest fan of doing games when it comes to a monitor. You want to be there presently and just seeing how, for example, you could be watching the game, but then you see all of a sudden Monty Williams making a different type of decision when it comes to, Hey, each one more, come up and uh, you're coming into the game, you know, like it's something that sometimes you can't see on the TV screen, you know, and, and that t- changes the the way of a broadcast, you know, but when it comes to other things, just the value and appreciation one has about their lives, you know, because there's people that unfortunately passed away because of this virus, but just when it came to the beginning stages of this and just throughout the whole journey of, of COVID-19, just how did it impact you uh, your personal life, uh, your family, uh, your work, and just how you carried yourself every single day during this pandemic? Well, I would say first and foremost, you and I would have never met uh, if it wasn't for the pandemic. Um, I would have never been a professor uh, because I wouldn't have had the opportunity. I would be traveling on the road and uh, my schedule wouldn't allow for it. So that was, I guess, a silver lining of this thing was getting an opportunity like that to go to the Cronkite School and teach a live play-by-play broadcasting class was uh, definitely phenomenal and getting a chance to meet you and your classmates, uh, many of whom I, I believe I'll stay in touch with for a long, long time, even if I don't ever teach another class. Uh, but then, you know, the, the other things are, are just day-to-day life things. Um, I remember a stretch where, you know, we were taking things very, very seriously in my house well before uh, there were restrictions because, you know, my wife being an immigration attorney was dealing with clients from all over the world. And in many of the countries she was dealing with, they were already up against it. I mean, there were already big numbers in places that uh, she was talking to. And so she would tell me, look, this is coming. This is real. And we need to brace ourselves for it. So we did, you know, and even when it came to going out and getting toilet paper, I was well ahead of the crowd on that because my wife had told me, hey, you might want to do some provisions uh, shopping. And so we did. We, we had some stuff put away uh, for a while and then eventually had to uh, get, get involved with that tussle with everybody else when there was no toilet paper to be had. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was things like that, getting ready and mainly keeping my eye on the ball with regards to my family, my wife and my kids, and making sure that we stayed safe and, and that we uh, kept my wife's parents safe 
who lived, you know, only a few blocks away. Obviously, I didn't get a chance to see my folks, and and that was one of the toughest parts about all this was, uh, you know, having relationships that you have that you normally would, uh, you know, share time with in person, and that got cut out for a lot of us who live away from our close family and our blood relatives, and and that's probably the biggest challenge, uh, you know, uh, is cutting those things off and the other sacrifices that obviously we had to make, you know, canceling vacations and and stuff like that. From a career standpoint. Um, you know, it's been quite a learning process. I told you about the fact that we would never see, have met because I wouldn't have taught a class. But in addition to, do, to teaching a class, I also did other things like calling NBA 2K games for radio broadcast, meaning looking at a screen of two guys playing a video game who were in two different parts of the country and then trying to recreate it for a radio audience as if it's an actual game being played, but knowing that it's a video game and having to continuously describe that as well. It was quite a challenge uh, doing that with Tim Kempton, both from our homes. I was right here in this room, calling it off this uh, computer monitor. Oh, that's and, where uh, the, the bit things happened, uh, right? Where the magic <laughs> happened, and he, he was in his house. Uh, you know, and, and uh, that's why I bought this gamer headset because we were doing it. It just made a lot more sense for me to have a headset like this. And, um, you know, lots of different things I learned uh, during the course of this last year and a half, uh, broadcasting wise and life wise. And I'm sure we all did uh, life wise and, and um, still are. And so now it's a situation where, you know, I'm looking at adjustments that have been made in, in our industry specifically. And I mean, I think the, the message I like to get across to people is that uh, what we do is a craft. It's, it's an art form as well. And, you know, when you tell a radio broadcaster that they're not going to be able to see the live images some of the times and yet are still going to have to describe it to their audience, it's going to make that broadcaster have to go uh, one of a couple different ways. Uh, they're going to have to improvise and come up with some way to stall until they see what they need to see to describe. They're going to have to apologize, which I had to do regularly. And I know you did too, Marco, when you don't see something and you just want to be honest with your audience. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. and, and they're going to have to, uh, you know, get into a situation where maybe uh, they, they stretch the truth a little bit in some cases. I have heard some of my colleagues say, I don't care if I lose it, I just make stuff up. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be honest with my audience, and that's always been my tact. Uh, but it's a tricky one. It is a very tricky one because, you know, look, there's probably some people that tuned into a broadcast this year, and it was me on the call with Tim Kempton from the conference room. It was in the middle of a confusing moment, and I probably sounded like an absolute clown who didn't never broadcast before. You know, because I, I couldn't see what I was meant to see and describe to the audience. And, and so I, I do think it's vital that uh, once we're through the protocols and, and whatever other situations are keeping us uh, from having um, road broadcasters on the road in uh, road environments calling games for their home audiences, uh, I think that the message needs to get out there of why it's important. It is important for so many reasons. Beyond just the ability to describe the proper things, uh, you can avoid sticky situations like what we had in the Lakers-Suns game earlier this season. I know we spent a half a class on this one with Devin Booker getting ejected and none of the broadcasters having any clue why. 
Why? Well, because none of us were in the building and we couldn't get the uh, announcer uh, or the referee description. Uh, we didn't have the live feed for that. We didn't get uh, the description of what happened. And what did that lead to? All kinds of uh, rapid uh, speculation online on all the socials, as Devin Booker would call it, uh, of people wondering wh why it was that he got ejected. And then you get false things out there, fake news, as people like to say, uh, runs rampant. And, you know, we're better than this at this point. If it's a matter of saving money, there's a lot of other ways you can save money than deciding you're not going to travel your broadcasters. And I'm hopeful that um, all the leagues in sports, uh, you know, realize that as well. Yeah, hopefully that that'll be the case, uh, because being in a arena, it's definitely a, a special thing, you know. And uh, when you said about not being able to see what happened, I, I did share with you how, when I was doing my first, like my play-by-play -play debut, when I was able to fill in for my uh, my boss that does the, the Spanish Arturo, was the the Suns and Thunder. You know, the Suns and Thunder game, and uh, when it was a blowout, it was uh, unfortunate because the first two quarters I really couldn't see what was going on. You know, the the TV screen was glitching every single minute. No, not every single minute. Every single five seconds, more more like that sense because. You see a jump ball. You see DeAndre Ayton going in the center of the of the of the court. Then you see all of a sudden CP3 with the ball, and then all of a sudden you see the Thunder with the basketball going against uh, Jay Crowder. It, it was just it, it just sucked, you know. And it takes out what you're saying, John, not being able to be there live and seeing things happen between like in front of your eyes because something that that you know as a broadcaster, many people that are in this industry, what you see you're basically saying it as you're, as you're going, you know, it's, it's like in like a second nature, like it's automatic. Like you're saying like Devin Booker with the ball goes onto the left wing and goes over CP three, the top of the key jump shot, three pointer. Good. You know, you're seeing it live in action. And when you don't have an image, you can't do it. You can't do the job. So hopefully that changes in the future. Uh, but anyways, John, it's, it's been a great, great show, but we're, we're not finished yet. Uh, we got some time. Uh, I don't know how much time you got left, but I, I do want to ask you, is um, when it came to just the moment when you saw COVID making a huge impact and obviously you're back in the arena and I've seen fans back, you know, was there a different sense of your, of your appreciation with, with life in general? No doubt. No doubt. Appreciation for life, appreciation for the ability to get out of my house at that point and go to a basketball game, see a basketball game in person. Remember that first one that you saw in person after going a long time without it. That was all appreciated at the uh, nth level for me and still is, you know, uh, it's been weird. It was super weird going into that gym when no one was allowed, you know, when it was empty at the beginning of the season and then they started allowing small amounts of fans and it was still pretty bizarre feeling uh, but as the place has filled up, it started to feel better and better and better and more normal and more like it used to and all the things that we were hoping for, that we were hoping we'd get back to at some point. And uh, I'm so thankful that we are headed in that direction. I'm hopeful that we will continue to head in that direction uh, and that, uh, you know, health will be uh, an important factor for all of us moving forward, obviously, uh, more so than it ever was now that we've been through this whole thing. Yeah, definitely. And uh, just being able to be in the same organization. Yes, we haven't shared the building of Suns Arena yet uh, because us in the Spanish side, we're still in the studio, you know, but being able to just uh, live this season with you, it's been a, a great experience. You know, not just my professor, but being able to 
learn from you. You know, it's, it, it's been great. Uh, but just kind of to almost to wrap things up, John, is um, throughout the course of your career and seeing how you've gone through your highs and lows when it comes to getting a job or not finding a job, uh, being without McCoy, you know, because you want to do play by play and he's still doing what he's doing and you're waiting for the opportunity. Right. So just what has been your mindset like uh, about motivating yourself or at the same time, just being patient when it comes to uh, getting the opportunity, hopefully down the road when it comes to Al McCoy's retirement. I think it's just, uh, you know, keeping your mindset, uh, you know, a healthy one, meaning uh, looking at what you have. And uh, so that's what I try to do instead of what I don't have. Instead of getting frustrated that I'm not where I maybe thought I was going to be 20, 25 years ago, uh, I'm just kind of staying right in the moment and uh, loving the fact that I'm, I'm involved with the team that I grew up cheering for from my career, that I am blessed with uh, a loving wife and, and two healthy daughters who I love and, and a great dog that I, that I spent a ton of time with around the house that I can still play some golf once in a while. Uh, and, uh, you know, just so many things that, that I can look at and say, these are great things. I can, I can focus on the positives in my life because there are plenty and maybe more than I even deserve. So at this point, you know, from a standpoint of moving forward in my career, I'm going to keep plugging away. I'm going to do what's worked so far, which is using my passion, my energy, my desire, my skill set, and, and my work ethic and put all that together. And, and uh, if that doesn't get me where I want to go, I won't uh, have any regrets because I'll know I, I did everything I could. And when it comes to golf, um, like we said earlier in the podcast at the beginning, uh, John took me to my first round of golf ever, and it was a fun experience. I wasn't the best at it when it came to hitting off the tee and, and getting on, on the fairway. But uh, we have to – well, just to let people know that uh, the fee to get John Bloom on the podcast, ladies and gentlemen – was when John said that if I pay for the next round of golf, he would come on the <laughs> podcast. So, John, we have to kind of lock in that date pretty soon to get another round of golf in, without a doubt. You say the word. I'm ready when you are, Marco, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Best of luck to you moving forward. I can't wait to follow your career, my man. No, I appreciate you, John. And once again, uh, John Bloom from the Phoenix Suns broadcaster. Rally the Valley, baby. Let's go, Suns. Let's go. And that does it for today's first ever episode of the Alta Sports Podcast. Once again, it's not really the first ever episode. The first episode of this new series, I guess you could say like that, with John Bloom from the Phoenix Suns. A great, great conversation. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Don't forget to like us, share us, rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We would greatly appreciate it. And also, just a simple thank you for spending some time with me and with John Bloom really, really means a lot. So thank you so much. Once again, everyone take care, stay safe. God bless. And I'll see you on the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Alta Sports Podcast with Marco Peralta. Like what you heard? Make sure to share us with someone and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Alta Peralta for updates on upcoming guests on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the Alta. Want to connect with the show? Send us an email at thealta at outlook.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one. So long, everybody.